Hello and a very warm welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Bryn. And I'm Eric. Welcome back. So Russell T. Davis is dominating a lot of the online discussion of Doctor Who at the moment. Has he brought David Tennant back as the 14th Doctor, the Metacrisis Doctor, a multiverse version? Or did the 10th Doctor just decide to wear a different coat one time? (laughs) Who knows? But we're going back to the 1980s to talk about the big Finnish production of Davies' first ever Doctor Who script, Mind of the Hodiak, which he sent to the production office during the Colin Baker era. As ever, we'll be talking about the whole shebang, so beware of spoilers if you haven't heard the story yet. So this was commissioned for audio after he stumbled across his spec script during the lockdown tweet-alongs at the end of 2020. He had the first episode fully written up and a detailed synopsis for part two, which has now been scripted by Scott Hancock. This is kind of one of those nice stories you get, I think, due to the longevity of Doctor Who and the sort of lifelong passion that it can instill, like Peter Capaldi's childhood attempts to run the Doctor Who fan club and then become the Doctor. (laughs) That's really nice. And I think because it's a show that sort of um, inspires people to to get into into tv production writing acting that kind of thing as well so um it's uh yeah it's, it's just kind of a nice story isn't it that i think he's sort of barely out of his teens and uh, and sat down and wrote this script and uh, and sent it in so uh as you know i'm probably know i'm a huge fan of the writer's room podcast and you're currently oh. steeped in the first russell t davis era eric yes uh, and Bryn, without making me and Eric feel too ancient, I guess you're a child of the Russell T. Davies first. Yeah, I was, you know, my first Doctor Who was Russell T. Davies when I was five years old watching The Christmas Invasion. Jesus um, and um, <laughs> yeah, I've been a massive fan of Doctor Who ever since and also just a massive fan of Russell T. Davies in his own right. I've mm. watched pretty much all of his shows since Queer as Folk and I've also started trying to track down some of the older harder to get stuff and i also wrote my dissertation about queerest folks i'm really into Russell davis's work independently of doctor who and with it fantastic i mean that can't be right because um the uh that christmas special was only five minutes ago so <laughs> i'm sure you've got that right, but uh... uh yeah we're we're deep in uh the first as you say the first rtd era and it's it's really interesting to revisit it, especially at such a distance. Um, you know, we he he left, uh, you know, almost 15 years ago uh, for the first time. And so it's really interesting to go back and especially look at some of uh, the stories that we don't remember quite as well or sort of his influence on the show as a whole. Um, it's mainly been positive reappraisal, sort of things that we remembered fondly becoming even more positive in our minds but at the same time, there are he's his Doctor Who is very tropey. He has his things that he does, uh, and not the other Doctor Who writers aren't. Uh, but it is really interesting at this distance to sort of go back and look at those, um, and also sort of see what he was doing underneath, because he often was doing things underneath that I think we didn't always pick up on at the time, or else we assumed were mistakes instead of deliberate choices he was making as a writer, which I think is a Thing fans do a lot if we go like why'd you do that that was dumb and it's like well that was the writer's decision <laughs> he he was doing something different than what you wanted that doesn't make it a bad a bad piece of writing i think probably since his era has ended we, we've learned more about how much he contributed to the scripts which were credited to other writers and things mm-hmm. as well and probably appreciating more from 
from that sense. Um, and obviously, when you started revisiting this hero, it must have been before the announcement that it was his first era. Yes, it was. <laughs> yes, I, I, I don't think it would have affected our decision to sort of uh, come back to modern Doctor Who. We had done all of the classic series, and then we did a couple other genre shows we quite liked. And but we kind of thought, you know, our our friendship, Kyle and I, friendship was sort of formed over Doctor Who, and we should sort of return to it. Um, and with the, uh, at the time, it was sort of the Chibnall era that had marked a very clean separation in terms of writers, with the exception of Chibnall, no one who'd written for Doctor Who previously was carried over. Uh, it was sort of a really fresh start for like, oh, this is a nice, clean mark. We can sort of do the Moffat and the Davies eras sort of as a chunk. And then, yeah, then a, a year or so in, we're like, Russell's coming back. Uh, uh, like, okay. <laughs> uh, so, so on to Mind of the Hodiac. I think, although it sort of fits with season 22, Russell would never leave the Doctor out of the action for such a large portion of the story <laughs> nowadays. Uh, would he, no. uh, he, he's, uh, he, he and Mel take quite a while to meet any of the characters in this one. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because it's both, you know, a very good, very enjoyable story and also something that's so clearly of the time it's written mm. and also so clearly trying to imitate the style of Doctor Who on television. You know, he definitely adds his own flavour and flair that's there with all the sort of domestic family element of it. But it's also so much built to be a good spec script, basically. You know, I've... Um, uh, on my university course where I've been learning script writing, one of our units is we write a spec script for a pre-existing show. And it's all about researching the show, watching episodes of show, you know, looking at how long they are, how many characters they are, how many sets they have, all these details. And actually from hearing this audio, one of the, imp- the impression I got is that Russell had done that really diligently with mm-hmm. season 22 because it's it's obviously in the 45-minute, two 45-minute episode formats rather than four 25s. And just the sort of the size of the cast, the fact that quite a lot of the cast died just before the end of the first episode, so your second episode's got a slightly shorter cast, and the fact the limited number of sets, and the fact that they all seem like sets you could quite simply realise, like it's it's not Russell writing with the ambition he was writing with when he wrote in 2005, it's him very clearly thinking quite professionally, which is, you know, very impressive considering how young he was at the time. I'm sure he had not the same sort of formal training, but he's clearly really thought through actually wanting to get a job, not just wanting to make the best Doctor Who script ever. Yeah. And, it, and it's it's interesting when I was listening to it, it, how many of sort of the sort of Colin Baker era sort of um, sort of motifs would pop up. We had sort of, you know, you have Phil in the Colin Baker era, who's the only like rec- returning villain who comes up twice in Colin Baker era, you know, um, who is sort of uh, a financial bad guy in that sense and that was obviously also coming off case of Androzani which had sort of financial shenanigans and things and then we have this villain who's sort of manipulating the markets it feels very of the time um and also sort of the weird obsession with psychic stuff which was a weird big a big thing in like yeah. 80s and 90s too but I mean the Colin Baker era started with the twin dilemma and these sort of weird brilliant psychic twins and sort of this sort of uh idea with psychic powers and uh and it also has a very uh, like the Hodiac is a very sort of, I feel very 80 sort of Doctor Who alien menace in that it's 80s Doctor Who to me doesn't always feel like it actually tries to make sense of the aliens. <laughs> like how the Hodiac would come about as like 
like why that creature makes any sense, but it, 80s Doctor Who doesn't care about that much until sort of the Cartmel era where it starts to be a bit more sort of, does this make sense? It's more like, that's an interesting idea. Um, and again, it's, you know, as you said, Brim, it's sort of like, it'd be realized pretty cheaply. There's no like, you know, uh, it, it's sort of a guy. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just a guy who sort of, uh, sort of uh, fries people's brains. Uh, and the only sort of like uh, prosthetics or effects we would need would sort of be the uh, the tungsten warriors who I don't know why they're not just Cybermen because they're <laughs> essentially Cybermen, but that's fine. They're the tungsten warriors and they're a mercenary. But again, that's also very 80s who have people sort of manly men shooting at each other, uh, which I think Russell was less happy about than Eric Sayward and maybe one reason why <laughs> Russell's script didn't get picked up by Eric Sayward, but that's a separate question. Yeah, def- definitely. Like you say, there's uh, there's a lot of elements like that where, like you say, that the shootouts are reminiscent of sort of Earthshock, aren't they? And uh, and, and those kind of stories uh, that we get at that time. And and, um, and budget wise, like you say, uh, they're, they're mainly, although they they are aliens, these uh, sort of uh, cosmic stockbrokers, <laughs> they are, they are just yuppies, aren't they? They're um, mm-hmm. which uh, which is very eighties as well, is to yeah. is to hate yuppies and think that they're completely. Uh, uh, or to realize that they're completely amoral and, <laughs> uh, if not immoral, and, and awful, awful people. Um, yeah. So they're quite funny, but they, they're not from the future or anything, but they use all the terms that Earth stockbrokers would use, uh, even sort of like about paper collapses and uh, that type of thing. Yeah, um, which which I just, I just have to throw them. Reading it, it was sort of like, oh, clearly whoever wrote this, doesn't actually understand business very well. And this is the thing I always find kind of annoying about Russell is he doesn't really get how business works. Yeah. Uh, he's always a bit simplistic about it. And I'm like, no, that's, that wouldn't cause total paper collapse. And that wouldn't make you, <laughs> no, you know, no one would suddenly have to worship your gold. Like that's not how any of this would work. <laughs> it's all very sort of surface level financial shenanigans. I'm like, fine, whatever, I'll go with it. Yeah. But I'm listening to him like, no, that's not no. <laughs> Whoever was in charge of the markets would stop the trading, and there would be a reset. And because we've seen flash crashes and similar things, and we know what happens in that situation, and it's not someone somewhere who has all the gold suddenly becomes the <laughs> king of the universe. That's not how that works. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair observation to make of Russell's work. That you know, when he does say political stuff in years and years, it's quite, in some ways, quite surface level. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of that thing of it works for the story and he yeah. kind of always makes whatever work for the story um which yeah. i think is kind of yeah i mean that's certainly the case here but yeah. it did also feel like he had satire. yeah yeah and it did feel like maybe he had you know read a few pages of a textbook and gone oh this sounds interesting like because I, I don't know where he was picking that information up necessarily but you know. yeah yeah like you say we as we, we just saw in russia they they just closed the stock market didn't they when yeah. uh, you know when the southern economy was in danger but i wonder if it's slightly goldfinger inspired as well the idea of uh, mm. somebody massively increasing the value of their own gold by yeah you know by causing uh but then and i think this whole thing would probably be one scene in a modern day russell t davis script yeah. the whole uh the whole scene with the with the stockbrokers and everything but the whole aim is to become rich enough to be able to hire the tungsten warriors. Which is a very strange roundabout way of doing that. <laughs> Who else is affording to hire them? How are they getting any work if you have to collapse <laughs> the economy of the universe? 
It sounds very inflationary if that is uh, yeah. the only way it's, it's, That's not a sustainable business practice, I don't think. <laughs> uh, but it, yeah, that's, that, that's a fairly minor thing. But it, you're right, it sort of it would now be handled in a completely different way. Um, yeah. And it wouldn't be this sort of really significant series of scenes where you sort of meet all of these terrible human beings. <laughs> <laughs> again it is emulating that classic who structure thing that sort of stuff. It's, it's making sure there's a subplot with some people sat in a room talking you know whereas now <laughs> as you say it would be because it is especially when you put it like that it is literally just written by the tungsten warriors so like by the end of the first episode it's completely irrelevant almost you know yeah. and that's yeah yeah it, it, it is sort of i mean it, it makes her a very uh a, a, you know interesting juxtaposition of the sort of financial yahoos in their you know space trading floor um and then and then this very domestic uh modern day set although it's interesting uh the doctor even says at one point i must figure out what year it is it's actually really hard to pin down unless you know that the story was meant to be set in like present day when you just listen to it it's hard to pin down where those sort of earth scenes like what time period they're happening and you figure out based on a reference later, it's like, oh, it must be mid-80s. Obviously, if it were on screen, we would see that, but I thought at some point the Doctor would say, ah, 1985 or something, and he doesn't. And I kept being like, when is this? Is it (laughs) the future? Is it now? Yeah, I guess that is probably another thing where just in adapting it from TV to audio, it wasn't sort of for, you know, it's just because obviously on TV you just see it and you assume, oh, yeah, contemporary Earth, okay, got it. That shorthand, visual shorthand, that just isn't there in audio. And it does seem like, from listening to the extras, they made only very, very limited changes, whereas obviously in the past with um, Lost Stories adaptations, even if there has been a draft of the script that existed, they've had to make quite significant changes, whereas here it really feels like they just took the script pretty much um, for the most part. Yeah, it's probably the lack of mobile phones is is the biggest thing that suggests mm. that it's... Um, yes. It's in the last century, isn't it? As references to sort of like John Menzies, which um, is a shop that hasn't been around since I was a kid. So it's... Uh, I didn't even know what like, that was and I didn't Google it. I yeah, that went over my head as well. So. <laughs> it's, um, it's a bit like a sort of a WH Smiths, which um, which probably only means up to you as well, Brim, but it's, it was that kind of shop, basically. Yeah. It was a news agent slash bookshop slash sweet shop type. Okay, <laughs> type okay. Of yeah. Uh, I suppose where, where the bridge is from those uh, things where he's trying to emulate the era that he was writing in to the current one is, is that normal family in a in a normal domestic house which you just never got in classic doctor who did you it seems like such an obvious thing such an obvious win that russell davis was even thinking about it uh as you know before he was a professional writer and it, it's really you know a big part of the success i think when doctor who did come back in 2005 is to make it that much more relatable uh by, by bringing that in and it it kind of struck me that other than the TARDIS being guided there, there's nothing really to make the Doctor that suspicious to, to act the way he does, other than he's just never in that setting, so it's so weird for him. <laughs> he's in a house. It's like something must be very wrong because I'm not, I'm not in a space station or a nuclear power station or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's because uh, I, I didn't really, the first, the first time I listened to it, I didn't think there was that much... Uh, you know, to, for the lengths that he went to to track the family down, um, to uh, you know, to alert him that there was anything wrong. It it is. I do think I, I do think it has that sort of uh, sayward era, sort of where the doctor's involvement is tenuous, 
Uh, I think it's uh, the 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 male Hodiac uh, knows of the Doctor. Okay, that, that's also a very eighties thing. Everybody knows the Doctor. <laughs> Everybody's met the Doctor. Everybody knows the Doctor, uh, and and he somehow uses his massive mind powers uh, to sort of give these coordinates to the TARDIS, and somehow the TARDIS finds the other. I, I I had to work this out. Kind of the TARDIS knows how to find the other, and so it does. And that's what brings the doctor in. And the Hodiac's like, oh, the doctor's going to find her for me. And it's like, how? <laughs> it's, it's very sort of just, it's very sort of vague and sort of uh, papered over that the doctor, yeah, as you say, the doctor's entire involvement is is sort of almost difficult to explain why he's there and what, what role he serves. Um, obviously, once sort of they're in the sort of base under siege sort of situation, he takes a much more active role. Um, but Leading up to that, it's just sort of like, why, why are you here? Why, why are you part of this story, Doctor? It's, I know it's your show, but come on. <laughs> uh. Yeah, and again, you wouldn't you wouldn't have that extended interlude where he's pottering around the empty house now, would you? He would uh, he'd go straight to the Beckman Institute where the action is. Uh, the TARDIS would take him straight there, I think. Yeah, I mean that's the thing actually, because obviously it's easy to look at the fact that it's the 45-minute structure rather than the 25-minute episodes and think, oh, so it's quite similar to how we do in the modern series. But in the modern series, there's no way this would be a two-parter. You know, this would be done as a, a single-part story. It's not got the sort of scope or scale that you'd expect from a two-parter. And you could easily condense this down to 45 minutes, um, I think, for TV. Yeah. I kept thinking of, um, I always get the name of the 80s Dalek story screwed, uh, screwed up. Revelation, right? Revelation of the same word. Yeah, the... Yeah, yeah, where the doctor shows up. Literally, he doesn't meet anyone else in the castle at the beginning of episode two. Uh, <laughs> yes, of a, a two-part story, yeah. Um, right, exact thought, because it's so similar to that. And even, um, not to quite as an egregious extent, but there's so many stories in that era that just start with the doctor and the companion in the TARDIS for ages before they arrive. Yes. Like, Vengeance on Barros has, yeah. you know, at least a few TARDIS scenes and that gets into at least halfway into the episode. And it certainly had that vibe but here it's a case of yeah not only do they have a load of scenes in the TARDIS even once they arrive they then still have a load of scenes not meeting anyone else so, yeah. <laughs> yeah slowly tracing the trail of this family I do love the fact that the doctor is like I believe this button will redial and I remember <laughs> the 80s when redial was like the coolest thing ever which, which, <laughs> yeah that was, that was a fun little nod to the time up to date technology there yeah um, super fancy schmancy um but yeah, it would be, it was interesting because actually, you know, as you said, I think, yeah, he had part one written and then part two was sort of based on his notes and Scott Hancock did the fleshing out. Part two felt much more Davis-y to me because part two is sort of where like the thematic stuff became clear, like what the story was about and what mm-hmm. it was saying became clear in part two. In part one, you think it's going to be some sort of financial shenanigans and then some random earth psychics. Oh, and a crazy religious lady, um, who I'm assuming is Mr. Chin's widow. Can we yes, take that as that canon? Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Uh, but and then in part two, you bec- it becomes much clearer what he's driving at and what he's trying to say with this story, uh, which is actually in a way a change for '80s Doctor Who, which often didn't have a point. <laughs> didn't it? Sort of was just sort of like gun shooting and goodbyes. Good guys eventually won. Uh, but 
he, even at a young age, was like, well, no, I should be saying something with my Doctor Who. There should be a message here. Um, and it's not just that capitalism is bad. He goes far beyond that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the themes do crystallize quite nicely, considering it was obviously, you know, A, like a 30, 40-year gap, and then also this handover to another writer. And I think, you know, Hancock does do a pretty good job at filling in the, the blanks there, because, you know, there's no way that Russell would be writing it himself and mm. Russell it seems clear from the extras that Russell was very happy to hand it over to Hancock having sort of worked with him before and the result mm. I think is very it fits perfectly well with the first episode like there's not a sort of jarring moment like you're you're aware of it um because you know the context but like it's not something where you're listening to it and you're constantly going oh this doesn't sound you know which is yeah, really it, it feels of a piece doesn't it yeah definitely. yeah the thing about Chin, it, it made me think um, that Mrs. Chin is is somewhat like the third doctor uh, to begin with. She's apparently, you know, working for a government organization, investigating unusual phenomena. Um, but then, you know, as time goes on, you realize that, uh, yeah, she's not, not all that benign. Um, and then you kind of, rather than be a mirror of the doctor, she's sort of a mirror of the Hodiac because they've all sort of uh, driven, uh, you know, to her to find kind of evidence of the divine sort of thing and the Hodiacs want to find the other. And they've both got these uh, these assistants as well that they just treat mm-hmm. absolutely terribly and, and all around. Um, so it's, it feels like it's very obvious who, who Russell T. Davis's targets are, isn't it? It's sort of like yuppies and capitalism and um, sort of like very judgmental religious people. Because <laughs> um, yeah. the, uh, the, the really awful thing with his chin is when she sort of suggests that uh, that Mrs. Maitland's husband leaving her, which is somehow her fault, um, even though he just walked out, is the reason that they're being haunted. It's some kind of punishment being visited on her, mm. which uh, is is makes her like a truly awful character. <laughs> but also, um, doesn't feel like something they would actually have let into Doctor Who in the eighties. No, not not under Sayward Cartmel, yes. <laughs> yes, I think yeah. <laughs> I think Hartmel would have had a character like Mrs. Chin in a heartbeat, but certainly not during the Sayward era. Yeah, I found the like religious element and themes of it really interesting. Just again, as another thing that kind of links it to Russell Davis's wider career, just because I think he always writes sort of religious criticism in such an interesting and like nuanced way. Like you know, The Second Coming is a show that, on the surface level, because of the ending, which I won't spoil, could seem to be very anti-God, anti-everything. And then when you actually sort of dig into it and really focus on it, you realise it's kind of, it's a commentary on organised religion and on specific, you know, elements of that. And I find that really fascinating to see that here. It's obviously something that is playing on Russell's mind at an early age, but he obviously develops and does, you know, three hours of drama on later. And it was, it was interesting actually from the extras, um, on this set that Colin Baker brought up, was talking about how great a writer Russell was. And the example he brought up was The Second Coming, which was surprising, not because I don't think it's a great drama, just but because of all the examples people tend to bring up, it's usually, you know, Queer as Folk or It's a Sin or even, you know, like Cucumber, which didn't get many views, but was very critically successful. But so to hear Colin Baker talk about The Second Coming, I was like, oh yeah, that's really interesting. It's interesting that that's one that Colin has obviously picked onto and stuck in his head as being proof of how great Russell is. I do remember that being a, a really big mainstream thing at the time, mm. like um, you know, sort of thing that people at work were talking about, you know, like, well, you know, that sort of like, uh, you know, 
talking about the previous night's episode and kind of guessing what was going to happen. It was uh, probably his first thing that really sort of cut through to that level, I think. Yeah, it's a weird thing to sort of look at in retrospect because obviously it's not as talked about now as like Queer as Folk just has such a, a legacy. But obviously when I first discovered the second company and watched it, I thought, you know, this is amazing. This is excellent drama. And it's nice for obviously for people who are old enough to have seen it when it on, it sticks in their minds more than perhaps to, you know, people who just discovered it on DVD or whatever. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, uh, it is always really refreshing with the sort of massive figures in Doctor Who to sort of look at their other work and see how it sort of resonates and and harmonizes and sort of speaks back and forth. Uh, this is a slight tangent, but it's just something I thought was hysterical, where someone wrote that they didn't think uh, this was based on the Time Traveler's Wife, which I have not seen, and maybe it's terrible. I don't know um, the new HBO version of it. But they said, uh, essentially, that they didn't think um, Moffat could write uh, dialogue when there wasn't, like, aliens or, like, a ticking t- clock. For, I was like, have you seen Coupling? Like, this yeah. is the, this or, is the, or Press Gang. Or Press know? Gang. I'm like, this is a man who made his reputation on fun, witty dialogue mm. with interesting mm. characters you wanted to hang out with. He did not make his, you know, the puzzle box yeah. stuff came later. Yeah. That was sort of not and what he e- Even now, like, um, in a couple of weeks' time, I'm going to go see his play at the Chichester Theatre yeah. Festival, which is, you know, as completely domestic, you know, people talking, um, people we've met on holiday, you know, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, that it sounds like a fantastic premise, that play. I was reading an interview with him about it. It does sound amazing, yeah. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seen it after having bought tickets um in 2019 before a certain (laughs) international pandemic Uh, yeah that thing uh yeah uh but the one thing i did wonder about and i i'm not saying that hancock changed it or rtd changed it the sort of fact that essentially the story ends up being about how the power of the matriarchy defeats toxic masculinity kind of is sort of like the main th- would they is that actually what he planned in the 80s maybe it is maybe it is i'm not saying it wasn't it felt very of the moment that felt very au courant now mm-hmm. um, and it's, so it's uh, obviously i don't want to say that they changed the ending and in fact it used to be more techno gadgety or whatever uh but it is very sort of like we are female and we have evolved and we have spawned generations and we are unified and you are a pitiful man and you're angry and we're going to destroy you, <laughs> which I'm yeah. all for. Uh, but it felt very modern. Yeah. I mean, the thing you're saying about it might originally have been more technobabbly. It might have always been that it was there and that they defeated them through the kind of family bond thing, but that it was less crystallized specifically that. And I guess because, because naturally Scott Hancock in writing it is going to use sort of the phrasing of the modern times in order to kind of articulate it. So I think that's quite um, well observed that yes, possibly it was maybe not, if, if we had have actually been watching this in the eighties, it might not have been as obvious, but I still suspect that there'd be people, you know, writing on fan blogs and in little magazines and stuff who figured out that that was what it was about, mm-hmm. even if it wasn't quite as overt. So we haven't talked much about the Maitlands, but for me, probably were the most successful part of the story. I thought the, the characterization, uh, I mean, the performances are fantastic. You've got some some great names like uh, Tania Miller uh, playing Mrs. Maitland. But the way that in those early scenes, uh, they're, they're in the house and the unusual, I think things are floating and moving around. The way that each of the characters react to it differently, 
I thought it worked really well the way Mrs. Maitland, she's just really worried. She wants to protect her family. Um, and that thing of, of worrying what people will think, uh, I thought that really rang true because that's kind of what my mum's like is always like, you know, oh, you know, what, what people, what the neighbors think, that kind of thing, you know? Um, so she's just worried about like her elder daughter, like telling her friends, um, and then the teenage daughter's just kind of really just doesn't care, just whatever. Uh, the younger daughter's full of sort of the childlike wonder. She just thinks it's magic and everything. I thought that's that all worked really well. Their, their interactions were, were quite um, realistic and authentic and, and rang true. And the misdirect, although, although you got the early scenes with the grandmother where she's telling the granddaughter stories about other worlds and beings, mm-hmm. I feel like the focus shifts to Lisa, the elder daughter, uh, and much more makes you think that the weird phenomena is, is focused around her because there's a talk about um, about how, you know, sort of uh, poltergeist center around, uh, you know, kind of adolescence and that kind of thing. So it was, it slightly made you forget about her again as being the other. And, and that mystery does hang there for a while about which one of them it could be uh, until later on. So that that was quite deftly done, I thought. Yeah, I think it's such a well-realized family dynamic. I really like that sort of intergenerational thing where it's not just parents and children, but you've got the grandparent there as well. And it did, it did put me in mind of years and years, because it's hard to think of an example of an RTD show where there's kind of three generations or more that are significantly characterized. I think mine or mine has a, a grandfather in it. Who's not all there, but it's not a significant character in the way that all of the characters in this really contribute to it. And I really Again, it is that thing of the fact that we're all um, women, that sort of matriarchal mm. dynamic, which I think is another interesting thing to think about in terms of thinking about um, Rose. You know, it's Jackie that's there. She's, there's no um, father around, obviously. Um, mm. And also there did seem to be, in terms of talking about the family thing, I think kind of a missing link between this script and between Rose's also Damaged Goods, you know, the yeah. novel that Rusty Davies wrote in the mid-90s, which has very similar things of... Um, the sort of domestic family with some kind of hidden secret and also this sort of government organisation that's kind of getting involved in this. It's really interesting to see that there because I suspect that's even the case of Russell sort of consciously was probably thinking about this script at the time he was writing that novel with no knowledge that this script would then go on to be produced. Um, but yeah, it's it's a, a brilliant family dynamic, as you said, brilliantly cast. Um, I really like the fact that in the extras, Russell kind of acknowledged the fact that he was pretty certain if this script had have been made at the time, it would have been a white family. Um, mm. And that it was, because um, it was something that was on in my mind while I was writing. I was thinking, you know, there's nothing specifically in the script that references that. And it's, it very much comes down to Hancock's um, decisions as a casting director, which of course manages, means he managed to cast Tania Miller and plenty of other great actors. But, and so it's a, re- a really good decision, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, I realized listening to it that I have very little patience for teenagers, uh, which really wasn't a shock. Uh, but I was just furious with Lisa through most of episode one. I like her turn uh, where she becomes sort of the doctor's little helper. I thought that was really good and well done, but it was just maddening. Um, but it's just, it wasn't that it was written bad. It's like, that's what teenagers are like. And I just, I, I, I just have no patience. I have no patience yeah. for that stuff. Um, I did think, I did think, um, What's the mother's first name? I've forgotten. Mrs. Maitland. Um, she has an interesting first name and I've forgotten it now. Anyway, uh, she became a little overly trusting with Mrs. Chin, who is suspicious beyond belief, I think. 
uh, once they get into sort of that that part of the story. Uh, but I did think the characterization of sort of the different uh, members of the family was quite nice. And I, I liked the fact that there was sort of a very a very British aspect of it. Mark, you talked about like your mom saying what the neighbors would say. It's like in America, everyone mm-hmm. believes in ghosts. You know, it's like more people believe in ghosts than like believe in evolution or something. Probably. I don't know. I don't think that's quite true, but it's, a lot of people believe in ghosts. Um, and so like, if you say, oh, we have a ghost in our flat, the response isn't, it's, can I come see your ghost? It's not, it's a very different sort of uh, thing. And so I was like, why are they worried about the neighbors and the ghosts? The neighbors want to meet the ghost or come tape the ghost or something. It's a very different approach. America is a weird place. I think one of the things that is interesting with a family is how much of a dynamic, it's kind of, as you said, about how well the characterized the teenager is, but the fact that that was obviously being written in the 80s, and yet both that characterization and the characterization of the younger child really rings true still. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like there's these elements of sort of family life that haven't changed. Like, yeah, maybe if you're doing it now, the teenager would, you know, have like a smartphone or whatever and be yeah. texting the friends, but it's still that same thing. It's, you know, she's more interested in going hang out with her friends. She's not that fussed about what's going on with the family doesn't really think much of it and isn't is quite cynical about the figures that her mum kind of it's almost I almost thought of it in the terms of like the way that um parents end up falling for like Facebook scams and stuff. Mm. The fact that the mum is so trusting and the mum who's probably told her, you know, daughter all her life, oh be careful of strangers and be careful whatever is so instantly trusting of this person because they've got the air of authority you know it's a government she even mentions when she's trying to justify it to the daughter oh well the government are paying for it so it can't be um bad and yet the daughter is actually much more kind of on it and naturally untrustworthy as you would be yeah yeah those those bits uh quite uncomfortable i felt the way that mrs maitland was around mrs chin Mm-hmm. Because almost uh, almost obsequious sort of thing and, uh, and yeah. may, maybe I'm more sensitive to this because of the the political situation in the UK but being very impressed with people because of their education and uh, <laughs> kind of background and stuff is, is not like a, it's not a particularly healthy <laughs> healthy way to be and she is absolutely sort of being being taken for a ride and and um, it's sort of very exploitative of this sort of working class family isn't it where the you know they're saying, oh, you know, we're going to get fifty pounds each, and that, you know, it, it, it's a big deal. And then um, Mrs. Chin behind their backs when she's talking to her assistant Fairfax, it's like, oh, that was a fortune to them, sort of thing. She's uh, she's just really awful about it, and yeah, it, it, it generates a lot of sympathy, I think, for for Mrs. Maitland that that she is so so taken in by that. Yeah, and there's the whole sort of cultish vibe to the institute as well, which I think makes you know Mrs. Maitland falling victim to that feel very kind of sort of relevant in the sense that yeah she's but believed the sort of conspiracy stuff she kind of believes you know it's all the religious element of um mrs chin's character is tied into all this cultish and conspiracy stuff um which i think is quite interesting on a sort of take on modern world yeah and it i i listened without looking at like the cast list and stuff and i spent the entire time listening being like who is mrs chin oh my god it drove me mad and then finally i was like oh it's in that badland of course it is. Of course, Russell would be like, get Annette in to do this. She'll be great. And she's fantastic. She's incredible. Uh, she's maybe my favorite character, not because she's like nice or anything, just because she was so, she's such a Russell character, like 100% top to bottom. This officious, religious, fake, pious, fake, nice 
middle-aged lady of authority is like straight down Russell T. Davis's wheelhouse. That's like 100% the kind of thing he does and loves doing. Um, uh, and, and she just, she just nailed it so much. And it's, she was just delightful to listen to. I kind of like villains who are a little bit, a little bit smarmy, a little bit smirky. I enjoy that. I prefer that to sort of the, uh, vaguely threatening, like sort of Hodiac sort of generic, I'm bad guy where she was like, Oh, uh, maybe I won't have to kill you. (laughs) I, I liked her whole vibe. Uh, and really enjoyed her. It is a really fantastic cast. Like, and it's interesting because, um, again, from the extras, I think it was on the extended extras that came mm-hmm. as sort of a separate download. It did talk about the fact that Russell D. Davies wasn't sort of directly involved in any of the casting. It was very much, um, he completely left it up to Scott Hancock, but was obviously very impressed with casting. And there's so many people in there who either have pre-existing connections to Russell T. Davies' work, like Annette Badland's, you know, series on Doctor Who and Casanova, and obviously Tania Miller um, from years and years. And then also in there is um, Victoria Lambert, which I think is quite nice, given that she was in Russell T. Davies' first um, programme that actually got made, Dark Season, and recently did the audiobook of it for Big Finish after having not acted for 30 years or whatever. So <laughs> she's in there in a small part, which is obviously Scott Hancock. You know, it's the fact that Davies wasn't... Involved in the casting, I think Hancock is probably still very aware in his mind of, oh, who can we cast that has this kind of connection and has worked with his material before. And then also in there is loads of names that are sort of big Finnish regulars that, mm-hmm. you know, Hancock will have worked with a lot. You know, Alexander Vlahos being in there in like a really quite a tiny part, basically, because apparently when it was announced they were going to do this old RTD script, Alexander Vlahos, you know, asked Scott Hancock if he could be in it. And you get, um, uh, Laura Riseborough in there as well, who's um, in the Cicero range, has got Hancock directed. You know, there's lots of connections you can spot there. And just all in all, just every, there's no small parts. Every time I look back at the list, you think they've got a fantastic performance in for every part. Luke Caulfield being in there as well, I think is great. Yeah. Yeah. And the draw of Russell T. Davis script as well, like you say, we'll, we'll get the, the, the big names uh, like that. But yeah, Annette Badland, uh, you just, uh, she seems to be cropping up a lot recently. She was in one of the Ninth Doctor audios, mm. uh, where again, um, you wouldn't recognize her until you read the cast list afterwards. Um, she, she's like a Yorkshire cook in a, in a kind of a, a stately home sort of thing. Um, completely different. And she's in a recent um, episode of Inside Number Nine as well, where she was absolutely fantastic. So yeah, it's, uh, it's great whenever she, whenever she pops up. It's, it's great to see her. Annette Balance is like a fair bit of big finish and is always kind of amazing in it. Like I think she plays one of my absolute favorite parts in a Doctor Who story. There's a, from the sort of Unbound universe, Bernie Summerfield stuff where you have the David Warner Doctor, mm-hmm. there's a story which is about um, the Doctor um, attending therapy and Annette Badland plays the therapist and the entire episode is conversations between either the Doctor and this therapist or there's, there's some stuff with Bernie Summerfield in there as well because it is her range but it's it's such a fascinating part and there's a slightly continuity errors aspect to it where the doctor starts slightly fiddling with the life of his therapist behind the scenes and it's (laughs) an amazing audio and Annette Badland just really makes what is basically a freehander um absolutely fly so yeah I I think any big finish with her in is definitely a, a recommendation yeah her her she listening to it it's it it's so clear that she's I'm not she's not doing a voice but she's using her voice so so intently and so perfectly and that's something she did as you know Margaret Sladeen and that's what one of the reasons that made her so memorable and why they brought her back twice in that season is that 
the way she just delivered the dialogue. It wasn't, she was always looking for where can I inflect this word in an interesting way? Where can I draw out a syllable or something? Where can I do something that's a bit more interesting with it? And so that makes her wonderful. Yeah, wonderful as an audio actress, just um, completely creating this this woman in your mind um, when you don't see her, which is very impressive for me. She's fantastic. And like I say that that religious element of her character, it, it fits well with the with the Hodiak who sees himself as this godlike being, um, so grandiose right from the start, like always has to be referred to as the Hodiak. Mm-hmm. Um, even when somebody's addressing him, they say, does the Hodiak want to do this now? It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's a really weird sort of form, form of, uh, of addressing him. Um, so yeah, it's sort of, um, it, it, it marries up quite well with her seeking, uh, some kind of, you know, religious certainty. And then, uh, this, uh, this guy who pretty much convinced that he's going to become a, a godlike being is, uh, arriving. It's, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a, a nice setup when it finally uh, comes to pass. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure if this is deliberate or whether it's sort of a, just an accident and sort of a, a rhyme throughout history, but in Plato's Symposium, Aristophanes, the character of Aristophanes, not actual playwright Aristophanes, tells a story about how originally men and women uh, were sort of uh, part of this sort of larger four-armed, four-legged sort of circular being that sort of rolled around uh, and we sort of challenged the gods in that form, and so we were split into two. And that's why love exists, because we're trying to find our other our other half. And so, and this idea of the Hodiac, if they were reunited, would sort of become this god. felt very Aristophanes' tale, which is also in, um, uh, if you know, Hedwig the Angry Inch, there's a song that sort of does the, the story in song form the origin of love uh but this idea that yeah the hodiac's like and when we hodiac complete we will you know become god somehow uh <laughs> and we'll have power of a tremendous kind uh and all these good things uh, felt very yeah felt very reminiscent of that um again i in the end i thought the hodiac was maybe the least interesting part of the story like the actual villain not unlike a lot of 80s doctor who actually like you know like you know your your borads and your you know <laughs> your uh whatever the weasel people are um a lot of just like okay fine that's that's the threat that's fine that that's interesting uh it's fine but it, it i never I was never that interested in what he was doing or what his machinations were. Yeah, and I think sometimes sometimes human villains can be more interesting, um, or humanoid villains like you sort of Helen A's and, and, and people mm. like that. They can they can be a bit more compelling. But maybe if we'd seen seen some of the uh, you know when he um, was it devalues his employees that they're called and yes. uh, you know kind of swamps their mind and stuff that that may have made him a bit more memorable. Uh, and I suppose the fact he's swanning around in the Sixth Doctor's coat as well, which well, he doesn't really come to anything. No, no. I, I saw the cover and I was like, okay, does he pretend to be? Like, what is going on? And <laughs> it's never even really referenced in the, in yeah. the audio. They make, like, in the promotion for it, and even in the extras, like, they made a big deal out of, like, oh, the story gives, like, a role for the Sixth Doctor's coat and, like, reference that. And yet... That didn't come across in quite the way I was expecting. It doesn't. It's not something that really. There is that poetic description of the Sixth Doctor's coat at one point, but it felt kind of I don't know. 
yeah, that dialogue was really nice about that it represents all these kind of wonders of the universe. Um, but yeah, that that surprised me that it wasn't more part of it. It was just as though he was trying to sort of get into the helping to get into the mind of the Doctor mm-hmm. to take control of the TARDIS somehow. But yeah, it, um, it like you say, it wasn't from the cover what, what you thought it was going to yeah. be. Again, I guess that was something that was probably quite a visual idea when Russell wrote it that mm-hmm. maybe just hasn't translated that well. And we've tried to obviously say that but yeah it was funny that that seemed to be one of the big things but they said it on probably like oh there's a specific doctor's coat has an important role in it and that didn't quite materialize yeah yeah i suppose yeah. i was saying earlier about budget point of view uh the bound to have had spares of that lying around the world so. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah it almost made me wonder if like they would have actually tried to cast someone that looked like Colin Baker or maybe even double cast Colin Baker as, as the like male Hodiac, something like that. Yeah. Like make it more interesting, make it sort of an acting challenge like that. Um, but as it was, I was just like, why, why is he in the coat? <laughs> okay, sure. Fine. I guess if you want. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, like it, it, yeah, it felt very sort of just like, we need a villain, uh, let's have him be like this. Let's have him be a sort of, you know, what we would call now, like a sort of alpha bro sort of finance guy. <laughs> um, and, and the audience will hate him immediately and he'll kill people with his mind. And that's, yeah, that's enough. <laughs> and he'll, um, and he'll have a, a long suffering uh, assistant who is just an extension of his consciousness or something like that. Um, it, it's interesting how many things I felt even though it was, you know, a two-part, you know, 45-minute, 45 45-minute 45 story, just how much they're sort of unexplored that would have been more explored in a modern 45-minute one-part story. Like, you'd have gotten so much more content and so much less just faffing about. <laughs> and I almost wish they had, you know, I, I know the whole idea of this was let's actually do it as it was written, right? Let's do it as it was at the time almost as like a curiosity, but why not just work with Russell a little bit and do it as like a one shot, one episode, or even maybe make it a bit longer, an hour long and actually flesh out the characters, flesh out the dynamics more, cut the sort of many scenes about Toad of Toad Hall and (laughs) Wind in the Willows, which again, as an American, I'm like, I've heard of it, but it's not like a huge part of our culture. Uh, I was sort of like, okay, fine. It it was... It was an interesting thing how they, like, um, have tried to preserve it as, like, oh, it's it's a historical thing. We're just creating it, you know, based off the original. And yet, almost by definition, by producing it in a different medium with actors that would not have been, you know, doing that the first time, you're already updating it and modernising it. And yet, that almost clashes with this reluctance. And you do wonder, yes, like, whether it could have been an hour version sort of almost completely rewritten, probably still integrating lots of the same dialogue and same mm-hmm. scenes, but really kind of redone by Scott Hancock or someone else um, properly for the audio medium in the same way when they adapted, you know, the book damaged goods into audio, it was completely rewritten as you would have to for the medium change and have it be that that release maybe contained the script and the synopsis that Russell originally wrote. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there may be, um, you know, that's something, a possible alternative. It's not, you know, I, I perfectly, I like this version. I think it is still interesting historically. I do kind of wish that I could read the actual script to see how it was written because I think it'd be really interesting to see how Russell's prose style was at that time. Again, as someone completely untrained and unexperienced, you know, 
I've heard Russell talk in interviews so many times about not having paragraphs in your um, prose, in your scripts that are longer than like three lines. I'd be so fascinated to know if that's something he did instinctively before he'd ever you know, worked in any professional capacity as a television writer or whether that's something he kind of picked up along the way. Because um, the earliest scripts of his that are really released are the Queerest Folk ones from 1999. And even then, when it's released in book form, paragraphing often gets reformatted. So really, the earliest ones you've got, whether literally exactly how they would have been on the pages, the ones who are available in Writer's Room, which I think the earliest of is Smith & Jones. So we're talking 2007, yeah. we're talking 20 years after this script. So I guess I just kind of want to see the physical script other than obviously there were the pages he initially released online during the runaway bride um tweet along event but yeah yeah which uh, there's stuff about again this sort of generation thing there they they were all uh hand they were all typed up on a on a typewriter mm-hmm. and uh emily cook of the doctor Who magazine says oh can you just uh email us over <laughs> to me and it's like well no that's uh, <laughs> that's a generation thing isn't it of thinking that all documents are um files that can be uh can just be uh, immediately uh sort of sent around like that mm-hmm. i think just uh, a couple of things i thought about the, the wind in the willows thing um although I, I did read it when i was a kid probably more familiar there was quite a famous um or quite a popular sort of stop motion series on in it would have been the 80s when i was a kid so it would probably have been quite well known for british viewers at the time mm-hmm. uh, from that although the book is you know kind of really famous and uh, and well known as well um and it occurred to me given how much they go on about that if uh did you say aristotle eric i think i feel like if that had been a an influence he would almost certainly have mentioned it whether he would have referenced Plato yeah i don't think just, rtd yeah. would have been like oh i'm gonna hide away this deep feels like i think if he hadn't <laughs> no, been doing, no, no, he, he would have had the doctor be like that. aha just like yeah you're right it is just yeah. one of those ideas that so that uh that is just sort of through a lot of philosophy, though, and a lot of uh, theology, sort of the idea of the male and the female and uniting them creates the whatever. Yeah, but yeah, that Wind of the Willow stuff, it really, it's really interesting because in the interviews, Russell Davis just admits, you know, it was something he was interested in at the time because he happened to have, I think he said he'd been doing some artwork for a, a performance of Wind of the Willows because that's what his, his job used to be. He was, you know, a, a drawer or an artist. Um, and um, just that he'd read it and was like, I'm going to put this in here, which is interesting because, you know, I think. Every single writer, you know, I know does that all the time where there's just what are you currently preoccupied with and it kind of bleeds its way into whatever script you're writing and to have it happen that kind of overtly and obviously, I think it is one of the elements that really shows like Russell's sort of almost immaturity and youth at the point he was writing this because I definitely still think that whatever's on Russell's mind does find its way into scripts, but in much subtler ways than let's just have the characters talk about this book for, <laughs> you know, three, four scenes, whatever it ends up coming to. Um, yeah. I suppose the big thing that happened between this and, or one of the things that seems to have been the biggest influence on him between this and the series coming back is Buffy the Vampire Slayer and, uh, mm-hmm. and the Angel TV series, because particularly when, when you know Doctor Who comes back and, and, and Torchwood, there's uh, there's a lot of episodes which seem like direct lifts, particularly in Torchwood with the uh, the sort of Fight Club episode and the the episode where somebody becomes psychic and and things like that. But that sort of... I was going to say the Adam episode where it's like, oh, there's somebody who's always been there, but, you know, kind of thing links to yeah. Buffy as well, yeah. Yeah, and that, that paciness and wittiness and, and that kind of thing, uh, you know, that sort of... Um, and, and a genre show which really broke through to the mainstream, uh, you know, it, it seems to have been a bit of a template for him, I think. 
Yeah, he he talks very uh, openly on like the commentaries and things about you know Buffy being a huge influence on the show, not just for sort of the sort of the monster of the weakiness and sort of the pace and the tone, but also sort of for how to do the serialized emotional storytelling like mm. to you know not try to do so much plot arcs over the course of the season but do emotional character arcs over the course of the season um and and then also have things where like sort of you know whatever's happening in the in the story reflects what the characters are going through emotionally which obviously mm. Buffy was very big at when it was doing well um yeah this feels very like as much as you can see sort of RTD's themes and things it feels very much like a pretty generic in some ways 80s doctor who story like it's not i i didn't know what to expect going into it i'm like i know he was young but he's a he's a genius so there's going to be flashes of genius but i wasn't sure but at the same time he was writing as you said brim very smartly he was writing a spec script someone he was trying to make it seem like the show he wasn't doing his doctor who he was doing a spec script for this version of Doctor Who at a time when occasionally very young people did get hired to write for Doctor Who or who didn't have the kind of credit. So he was really trying. It wasn't sort of, you know, let me just do my crazy thing. Uh, and so it ends up just kind of feeling a bit like, okay, yeah, I can imagine the drab rooms that this would have been shot in. I can imagine <laughs> the overly bright flat lighting. Like I, I can, I could see it all. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, I mean, that's fine. Part of me wonders if the fact that this is, in many ways, such a good spec script for like season twenty-two, mm -hmm. it's a reason that by the time this turned up on Andrew Cartmel's desk, it didn't appeal to him that much. Because you know, it's easy to say now, oh, Russell's an amazing writer. Why wouldn't Andrew have hired him if he got this script? But Andrew, if you look at the people he did hire, the sort of scripts they made, they were doing very new, very original, very off the wall things completely different to what Doctor Who had ever really been before and this script is not representative of that like obviously there's the element of it with the domestic family element and the sort of council estate thing but it's just not there to the same extent and yeah I can totally see why Andrew Cartwell reading this script wouldn't you know see what he was looking for in it mm -hmm. yeah yeah was it kind of if it feel like if they'd met uh, yeah, potentially that would have uh, you know they 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 would have sort of sort of got on and sparked off each other quite well. But yeah, it just it never occurred to me before. But what you said, Eric, about young writers that when Andrew Smith uh, you know was commissioned to write Full Circle, uh, that must be quite inspirational for a lot mm -hmm. of young Doctor Who fans. Uh, you know, who want to get into writing. So uh, it makes you wonder just how many of these spec scripts <laughs> probably started turning up around that time as well. You know, as yeah. It, uh, then, and and I, I want to say Glenn McCoy was a similar, not quite as young, but quite young, not very experienced. Uh, that got made. And obviously mm -hmm. sort of all the HG Wells stuff sort of feels like, again, you know, we're sort of referencing that a little bit here and there with all the Wind in the Willow stuff. It does feel like he's, like, again, it's, it's interesting seeing Russell try to do something very much that's not what he might normally do. We don't know, obviously, what he would have done if they had just said, you're going to make Doctor Who, make it what you want. <laughs> to, you know, we don't know what that would have been for adolescent Russell, uh, but it, or young Russell, I should say. It definitely doesn't feel like this is purely his, his thing. Um, I do think it's interesting, though. It, it was written for uh, the Doctor and Mel. Uh, I do think it's interesting that, and this is maybe not that surprising, Mel is not written very well very often, um, 
I think audio has given her a much better shot, but on TV, she doesn't have that many stories, obviously. And most of the writers just have no idea what to do with her. Um, she's never properly handled. Uh, I thought Russell did a really good job making Mel sort of uh, plucky, but also really brilliant and smart and kind and caring. And like, she has that great moment, which is maybe you see it a bit coming a bit, but you do see her say, you know, saying, saying the Hodiak, we're going to stand up to you. Cause that's what we do. Uh, like, yeah, go Mel. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was another interesting element in kind of trying to date whereabouts it was written. Cause mm. it's sort of, it's very clearly channeling season 22 in terms of the format and the vibes. And yet presumably I was trying to figure out whether it was possible that Mel had been announced at the point he was writing it, but maybe not cat, like maybe trial of a time will hadn't aired yet. And that's why he was still working with the 45 minute format or possibly it's a thing that he started developing the idea for 45 minute format and then changed the companion to Mel at some point. Cause I'm, you know, I'm sure it took him quite a long time to develop and write mm-hmm. given the sort of professional consideration he's clearly taken to it. So yeah, the timeline for how it's written is quite interesting. Cause I, and I do wonder if it's a case of it was between season 22 and 23, but after Bonnie Langford had been announced and whether he was kind of assuming the format would continue. But yeah, it's, it's a hard one to pin down in that regard. I was also, I was mainly interested in that just trying to figure out exactly how old Russell was at the time because, <laughs> um, you know, he's born in um, 1963. So mm-hmm. for me, I'm thinking, okay, so if he's written it in 85, that means he's like less than a year older than I am now. Maybe if it says, you know, I'm just trying to think, okay, right. So if he can write like that at that age, you know, pretty, <laughs> pretty solid. Um, what have I got to try and aim for? Um, well, I think the biggest message in terms of that though, like in terms of someone who's like trying to write their, their thing or is, is as I and I say, and I don't mean this in a bad way. He's not trying to reinvent the wheel with this story. He's not trying to completely like it feels like it fits in that era. Like the Doctor and Mel feel like that version of the Doctor and Mel. Sick Doctor is nicer than he usually was on screen, which I quite like. Um, you know, he and Mel have a nice, charming relationship. That's all well and good, but it's not like anything we haven't seen before with the Doctor and a companion. It, he's not doing nine in rows or ten in rows, right? He's not doing that. Uh, he's not reinventing how the villain works. He's not reinventing, like, he's adding his flavor. He's adding his sort of touches, the sort of domestic life. Um, I think the sort of general, especially funny for the era, the sort of general frowning upon guns and fighting and stupid men fighting each other because that's glorious, which is, you know, this is an era that gave us King Yarkarnos and all that nonsense. Um, <laughs> Russell seems to have no truck with that, which I approve of. But he's otherwise he's doing like he's doing kind of what the show does. And I do think sometimes young writers or young creators generally sometimes feel like they have to that what they make has to be all them completely fresh from their minds always. And it's like, no, it can kind of be like something else with your flavor. And then as you grow in confidence about what you want to do, it'll become more and more purely you. But it's okay to start out being like, why well, I, I like that writer. Do something what that they do, but make it my own. I think it's also interesting to think about, actually, given that this was, in effect, an unsuccessful spec script, and obviously mm-hmm. he didn't get to make Doctor at the time, and po- as I sort of speculated before about what Andrew Cartman might have possibly made up the script, but it's actually, it's quite reflective of the same advice that the BBC Writers Room gives for their, because they have a submission window for drama scripts every year, and every year the thing they say is, don't try and write a script that you think seems like a BBC drama. 
like you know write your script <laughs> write your idea because they get loads of submissions of people writing you know things that they think oh this is what every nine o'clock bbc dramas like and really that's mm. not what they're ever looking for in terms of finding a writer's voice um and so it's interesting in that sense i think russell's voice is absolutely in this script like mm. you can't miss it and yet maybe there's a version of a doctor who idea that he could write at this time that would be more which i think is probably what damaged goods is obviously there's also the added mm. element there that he's writing for a more adult audience yeah but damaged goods you feel his voice in it a lot more which i think is because obviously the new adventures as a line is just a lot less restrained by the rules of mm. televised doctor who yeah yeah it is interesting because damaged goods i've read a few times now um and I was kind of expecting something closer to that in this. Mm. And so seeing him do like pretty common 80s Doctor Who, knowing that the next Doctor Who thing he would write kind of was Damaged Goods, which came obviously significantly <laughs> after this, uh, was sort of was sort of very funny. Because yeah, Damaged Goods is nobody but Russell. Yeah. Nobody yeah. who writes Doctor Who would ever write a book like that. No one has done it since. No one did it before. It is, it is the rustliest Russell that ever rustled. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's wonderful, but also horrifying and and terrible, terrible uh, because it's very Russell. And he's actually quite dark and pessimistic at times. Uh, but yeah, it was interesting comparing the two. The thing for me with this story is just the fact that if it had a bed in the 80s as a Colin Baker story, I think it would actually, you know, it'd be up there with the, the sort of top end of Colin Baker stories, I think. And yet, if it had a bed, sort of say an adapted version of it, but broadly the same story with Sylvester McCoy I think it'd probably be nearer the lower end despite all the, and maybe with further drafts and stuff it would have been you know, but just as an idea as a concept um if we remove sort of the modern production of it and all the amazing cast it's got if you just take how it is on the page then you know I, I don't think it really ranks amongst some of the amazing like stuff that Sylvester McCoy consistently got that was really kind of out there maybe not always quite as finessed as this in certain places and part of that's down to the sort of over filming and then having to do very choppy edits mm. that happens a lot in that era but yeah. just the ideas and the sort of youth and the energy of it really scream off the page of the mccoy era in a way that isn't necessarily present in this absolutely i thought it was interesting that the the one thing that he did take forward into his doctor who writing was the music of the spheres idea because uh there's a short, isn't there? I think, was it for the Doctor mm-hmm. Who proms? Yeah. Um, of the Doctor in the TARDIS, uh, listening to the, the music of the spheres, like the, you know, the movement of, um, of planets and things like that. So it's like the, the, the one thing is that really poetic, lovely idea, which uh, so you say, like he's kind of a bit of a magpie writer. He's, he's picked all those things. So he's heard somewhere and, uh, and has really stuck with him. Yeah. yeah, music of the spheres. Uh, the is it goes back to Aristotle again. We're we're going back to ancient Greece, but then flows through. But but like people really believed it. Like uh, Kepler, who gave us the third law of planetary motion and discovered the elliptical orbit of the planets, also thought that like every planet made a different note. And like they really, some people really took it quite literally, like the music of the spheres. Uh, but then it just kind of became this sort of lovely phrase, meaning sort of the sound of the universe. Like that's. That's sort of almost more like a feeling than an actual sound. And yeah, it's Russell loves having those nice just phrases that he can sort of add mm-hmm. to things, um, whether he picks them up or what he makes them up. I love the fact that they did drop in the shadow proclamation in here. Like clearly they went back <laughs> and added that. I doubt he made that up. But that's the kind of thing that Russell will just write down the words shadow proclamation, not knowing what it is. 
not he's not decided what it is. And then later on, he has to, you know, or he decides, I'm going to make up what it is. And it becomes like space beliefs, essentially. Uh, but the first time it comes up, it's like the shadow proclamation. Wow, that's a, such a phrase. Uh, and he does love sort of just these these phrases or these words that sort of just sound nice and sound impressive. Uh, and it's really lovely it, that fits so well with Colin Baker's doctor, who's such a sort of verbal, dexterous doctor. It actually made me think probably for the first time of how similar Colin Baker's doctor and David Tennant's doctor are. They're both word people. They're both like almost mm. purely powered by speech and language and by talking a lot and using interesting words and talking interestingly. Uh, and how it, it was really, I'm like, oh, of course, you know, of course, because Russell sort of one of his doctors was sort of this very, you know, he tried to write for Colin Baker and gave him a lot of words. Yeah. It's interesting on that level of both of them being really wordy doctors that obviously um, the carrier knights were created to be in a type of doctor story as a sort of monster that relies on words as well as an mm-hmm. opposite. And of course, big, a big finish of actually done a sixth doctor carrier knight story, which really pulls <laughs> up and has bits where Colin Baker is literally just saying a lot of very obscure words, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. it's very clearly that, you know, they picked up on that shared element of them both being very wordy doctors and, um, written by very wordy writers. I mean, I think Davies and Pip and Jane are very wordy in different ways, but mm-hmm. they're both capable of, you know, churning out um, some some very memorable phrases, I think. Um, and yeah, I'd completely forgotten about that Shadow Proclamation reference till you mentioned it, but it does actually, it reminds me of how the Damaged Goods Big Finish adaptation has references to Torchwood and sort of foreshadowing of the Time War, which obviously isn't present in the original, but it's kind of a nice little nod to the, the wider world of Russell T. Davies's vision of Doctor Who. Yeah. Yeah. It is it is Russell um Russell write, likes writing dialogue and he likes having the doctor say interesting things. Um which I mean you that sounds like a really dumb thing to say. A lot of classic <laughs> Doctor Who writers just did not care that much about making the dialogue interesting. The dialogue was functional. You know, having mm. having analyzed the writing of every classic Doctor Who story, the ones who bothered to make it sound interesting were the exception, not the rule. Um, the ones who made it sort of, and that's something Russell definitely wanted to do. And Pip and Jay Baker were like that also. Like, their stories are memorable for good or for ill sometimes because the characters say interesting things. You know, uh, they don't just sort of say their plot function. Um they actually have really uh, interesting, I think especially Pippin Jane Baker was the, one of the few who actually had any sense how to write Colin Baker's Doctor. Um, and they're like, he's, he loves words. He loves saying words. He loves saying big, long words and big, long sentences and speeches. And let me give those to you. Um, and yeah, he's very good at it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, for me, Pip and Jane Baker are absolutely the best writers of the Colin Baker era which the fact that they then end up kind of being almost the worst writers of the Sylvester McCoy era mm. does maybe say something about the Colin Baker era, but I still, <laughs> I, I still really enjoy Terror of the Vervoids. Um, you know, the, the Blu-ray version of um, Terror of the Vervoids has the, the trialless edit of it, and that's so fun to sit and watch as just a, like almost a vision of what a Pip and Jane murder mystery script without all the trial elements added in could be and it's the characterization of the sixth doctor with mel in that story i think is probably the closest to this one in terms of the sort of the niceness between them um, i mean it has still got a bit in there i think of the mel poking the doctor to exercise but it's yeah. 
um, other than that, I think it's, you know, it's the sixth doctor when he's at his sort of more niceness and in a story with Mel, which really there is only two sixth doctor stories with Mel and obviously the ultimate foe is doing big finale stuff. So it doesn't really show much of their dynamic, but yeah. 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 The, um, it, I hadn't thought about it until you just mentioned it, but the fact that this is a real sensitive script that never once comments on the fact that the doctor is kind of chubby uh is quite interesting to me because he is especially that's one thing that we've in, in our sort of revisit of his era like it was known at the time that he really didn't handle sort of body image well like and i think he's improved greatly as a writer but like those early seasons it's a lot of fat jokes and stuff it's there's a yeah. lot of that it really is and that's something that also happens a lot in the colin baker era as well as the rtd early yeah, RTD exactly so it's like the combination of those two things could potentially have been yeah. yeah. I just think of Revelation of the Daleks when when we watched Revelation of the Daleks of the BFI and the Sixth Doctor started making comments about Perry's weight like less than a minute in, and everyone uh, in the audience just went <gasps> like people were genuinely <laughs> like shocked by it. A modern audience all in a cinema watching some people say quite terrible things. Yeah. Yeah, but and but yet this script never once has Mel poking the doctor in exercise or saying he's fat or yeah, there's none of that sort of stuff which you might have expected. I do wonder if that's the kind of thing maybe that also kind of got excised as they were yeah, sort because of I know preparing the script. There was reference to just some of the phrasing I think with how they talked about gender in relation to the Hodiac because obviously the Hodiac is based on like oh it's you know part like a man and part by woman. I think they said in the extended extras that some of the phrasing was changed so they weren't saying that men and women were the only genders. Mm, yeah. That might have been the original implication of the script, which would not have been an at all surprising thing for anyone to write in the 1980s. Mm. Um, but obviously, it's. I mean, this is where I think it's good for Russell and Scott, other people behind this, because they're very aware of that stuff. You know, Russell is obviously making an effort to cast... Um, trans people in trans roles in his new iteration of Doctor Who and Scott Hancock hosts a podcast where he talks to um, queer people I think it's called Queer to Eternity where he talks to sort of actors and you know science people a lot of people who've been involved in Big Finish um, about this issue and that covers right across the spectrum so they're both very aware of those sort of things which is nice to sort of just dodge that bullet because it's the sort of thing where if you heard it you might it might stop you for a second you go oh well it's the 80s or whatever but it's still when it's that easy to just remove it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, with it was interesting because I I was very as soon as like the general concept was made clear, I was like, oh, uh, uh, <laughs> let's, let's see. And they really don't step in it in that way that I kind of anticipated they would. Um uh it is sort of set up as a male female dichotomy, but it's not said and that's how and that's how everything <laughs> is. And that's which is kind of where you would have expected them to to fall into it, but they didn't. Um it is and I mean, it's a little overly, it's a little sort of like dumb sitcom in that all the men are bad and all the women are good, <laughs> except for Mrs. Chen, who's yeah. sort of the only bad woman. Um, and all the men are idiots and or violent, but, you know, fine. Yeah. I mean, that <laughs> I'll, is I'll the thing, it. actually, that in this story, outside of the Doctor, none of the men have very memorable roles, I no. would say. Like, it's, it's the women characters who are memorable, which is, it's so interesting the way it speaks to it, because so many of Russell's shows are so male focused and yet whenever he does family dynamics i think it becomes very female focused you know years and years um mine or mine i know it's often kind of a bit derided but you know i think the family dynamic in that is really strong and 
um, in Doctor Who as well with these um, female, um, the, the mother characters of mm-hmm. Jackie and Sylvia and um, uh, Francine. Um, you know, so it's it's fascinating that when he's writing about sort of, you know, like when he writes about like LGBT experiences, suddenly it's all men, like, you know, queer as folk, um, cucumber, it's a sin, but very, it's very, very much male his folk. experience and yeah. his purview. But then when he sits down to family, it's always the women, which I guess isn't that surprising given his family. I was going to say, I assume it speaks to the fact that he has, you know, older sisters. It's like the, if you look at the dynamic in, in Mine or Mine, where it's a family living in Swansea where there's a young gay lad with two older sisters. It's like, it's literally <laughs> oh, really exactly. imaginative, Ruffle. Yeah. Where'd you get that idea? Um, um, and obviously that whole story about them um, owning Swansea and all the madness that goes on is, is obviously probably not very reflective of his life, but it's interesting that when he comes up with a family, he's like, oh, well, it's just the exact, you know, dynamic of, of his. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting that he, that he thought to write such a female dominated story in, uh, I mean, classic doctor who generally fails horribly at, at, at writing roles for women uh, that are not, horrible and or just don't exist which is the other thing they don't appear often it's usually the companion and then one other woman and that's sort of it and then he writes this thing that is with the exception of bad guys all, all women uh, there was a really funny moment where they kill the security guard when the hodiak arrives and it's like well the other have to be female so kill the men i'm like the only male left in the building is the doctor (laughs) like literally there's like 10 people upstairs and there's one dude so good luck yeah yeah, i think that must just speak to like i think it comes off the writer's tale a few times where he talks about how with mothers he prefers to write women you know and with like matrix and stuff he says he finds it almost like he just in those kind of positions of authority or whatever he obviously just pitches it as being like such an interesting like insight into his mind and how that works. And yeah, it's really interesting to think about in relation to the rest of his um, career. Yeah. He's got the, the character there, Matt Trefess and Matt Trefennel as well, mm-hmm. who the, uh, the separately, the only two female characters in the, uh, in the kind of the, the stock brokerage um, who the rest of the characters are pretty sexist too, pretty misogynistic. Mm-hmm. But uh, there, there is more to them. They're, they're not just there as sort of greedy capitalists. I think one of them is, is basically reporting them, and then the other one's like undercover police. Um, and that that uh, that felt a bit eighties as well because it felt like Matra was was some kind of um, pronoun, like the way Caves of Androzani is it, is it say Trow? Is it like instead of like Troutim or whatever it is? Yeah, it definitely felt yeah. like that. It definitely felt. The fact that the men didn't have anything like that, but the women did, again, it's one of those things that's like, okay, interesting little thing to throw in there that's matrifest and metrophenyl. Um, But yeah, it definitely felt like that sort of title that the secretary has in case of Androzani. And of course, she's getting like sort of like survives and thrives in the story because she's smarter than all of them. Ha 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 ha. And that's what metrophenyl's going, isn't she? she? She ends up sort of taking over and she says, well, I'll rebuild the. The galactic economy and everything. Yeah, and that, God, what a job! Uh, the entire <laughs> galactic economy has been destroyed. Uh, let me go fix that now. Always like a woman having to clean up the mess. That's sort of. Yeah. 
But yeah, the fact that they literally have that like title of of Matra as presumably uh, taken from Matriarch almost it does make me wonder if actually Russell was a lot more aware of what he was doing with the women characters than we've maybe speculated. But I mean, it's, it's hard to say. But certainly, that feels something that's quite conscious. Yeah, and and the, certainly the way the men treat Matra Fennel when we see her arrive, mm-hmm. and that she's asking she's asking all of the right questions. Um, why the Hodiac needs her to ask all the right questions, I do not know. Uh, that seems to be a thing that he wants to have happen, and yet he, I don't know. Um, but, you know, she asks all the right questions, and they just treat her like an idiot for seeing the obvious flaws in this ridiculous plan. Yeah. I mean, she she asks all the questions so that they can explain the plan to the, yeah. the viewer, um, mm-hmm. slash the listener in this case. But, um, yeah, it's interesting that then, to have the reveal later on that she is obviously the one who's investigating them in order to report them, that actually then works quite well. We're like, yeah, okay, we'll we'll allow you to have that excuse for the exposition that she was asking because yeah. she's, yeah, undercover. And she also has that that really great moment um, where she's with the space cops uh, and they found the Hodiac, and it's before the Hodiac has sort of like found the other, and he's like. And the guy's like, well, now we wait. And she's like, we know where he is. Why don't we just arrest him? <laughs> and he's like, no, because then where's the glory in that? She's like, son of a, you know, another <laughs> idiot man who's looking for glory instead of just trying to get the job done. Uh, yeah. Does, the space cops are a bit like the ones from the twin dilemma as well. It, it made mm-hmm. me wonder if they would use the same uniforms and things. Uh, I, 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 in my head, they were. In my head, they were very, very <laughs> similar, if not the same, very similar. Yeah, it felt like he had. It felt like Ruffle saw the twin dilemma and saw I can do something with that. <laughs> space cops, <laughs> psychic connections. Yeah, that didn't even occur to me, but that is a good point about the sort of space cops thing. It's, um, obviously, that's one of the I think I've only seen Twin Dilemma once, and it wasn't okay. the most memorable of Doctor <laughs> Who stories, unfortunately. But, um, yeah. but yeah, I guess that's just another part that feels very 80s Who about this. Just like, yeah, space cops, you know, don't have to make them into um, rhinoceros men or, you know, um, albino <laughs> women. You can just have space cops. Yeah. Yeah, they have some sort of very vague, defined laser guns, and and that's yeah, that's that's it. That's that's all you need. You don't need to spend. You know, we we accept uh, the idea of law enforcement existing <laughs> in any time and place, and so and we're told, yeah, of course there's this space cop. Okay, fine, space cops. That's it. Yeah, maybe they could even got Kevin McNally back. You never know. Oh, that would have been. <laughs> <laughs> They should have got him for the big finish. I mean, he's done quite a bit of big finish in the last year. They should have... Big yeah. finish should have got him for this. That's a, a missed opportunity, I think. Uh, it is, yeah. They could have reprised the role. Couldn't that would have been a bit of a... I feel like that would have been stretching a bit. To, but yeah. Um, <laughs> that's why hasn't he reprised that role, to be honest? You know, if, if Kevin McNally's doing big finish, then why is he not playing um, his well-remembered Twin Dilemma character? <laughs> it can only be a rights issue can it yeah I'm sure it sounds for some reason it sounds more like the thing that Cutaway Comics would do than the thing Big Finish would do but um, they like their 80s stuff Greyhound leader to trap one emergency alert to all radar stations well thank you very much both for joining me it's been uh, really fun uh, speaking through this story just like to let our listeners know where else we can find you on the internet 
Yeah, so the best place is my Twitter, which will be at bmitchell underscore T-W-I-T-R, so Twitter without vowels and singular R. Um, and from there, you'll be able to find links to my um, articles on We Are Cool and um, also um, my links to, I have a, a page, which is just a, 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 it's my blog, but on the top of my blog, the first post is a where you can find my work post, which is a useful place for anyone who wants to hear or read more of me. Okay, and Eric? Uh, uh, simplest uh, would be uh, to to listen to either of my Doctor Who podcasts. One is Doctor Who The Writer's Room, which I co-host with Kyle Anderson, where we, talk, we take a look at uh, Doctor Who the writers and the stories they wrote, uh, as he always says. Uh, we're currently doing uh, Modern Doctor Who, and we're sort of in the middle of season three, actually nearing the end of season three, uh, talking about Utopia next time as this comes out, or at least as this was recorded. Uh, Martha, whew, wow, what a what a rough year Martha got. Uh, and the uh, the other Doctor Who uh, podcast I, I uh, co-host is called The Real McCoy, which I co-host with my friend uh, Adam, and we look at all the Sylvester, we did all the Sylvester McCoy TV shows, TV episodes, and now we're doing um, selected Virginia Adventures, and we'll eventually get around to doing some big finish as well. Fantastic. Definitely check those out. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Quark McMalice, and you can follow the podcast at TrapOne underscore and find all of our previous episodes at trapone.podbean.com. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>